0: Sorry that I'm doing this. To you. I'm starting all over again on this joke. Okay, perfect time for Cheryl and Regina. I'm starting the joke all over again. Okay? So, so uh, a theologian comes to the rabbi and says, I, I heard you are so smart because they study Talmud. I want to study Talmud. And he said, no, 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 no. You can't study Talmud. Talmud's not for you. And you have to really, like, you know, you have to be part of the clan. And he said, come on, what's so hard about it? Try me out. See if I can do it. He says, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example. Two guys come down the chimney. Who washes their face? She so goes, What do you mean? Thank you. I'm trying to remember what, what he said. What do you mean? I know the joke, but I'm gonna skip this part. So he goes, he goes, um, both of them wash their face. He goes, No, no, not both of them wash their face. The clean guy looks at the dirty guy, and he sees his face is dirty, so he washes his face. The dirty guy looks at the clean guy; he thinks his face is clean, so he doesn't wash his face. So he goes, "Oh, I get it. Okay, try me again. One more chance." He goes, "Okay." Two guys come down the chimney. Who washes their face? She so goes, "That's easy." The clean guy looks at the dirty guy's face and he washes his face. The dirty guy looks at the clean guy, he thinks his face is clean. He doesn't wash his face. He goes, no. The clean guy looks in the mirror and sees his face is clean, so he doesn't wash his face. The dirty guy looks in the mirror and sees his face is dirty, so he does wash his face. You have to learn to consider more possibilities. <laughs> so he said, oh, okay, okay, try me again. She so goes, okay, two guys come down the chimney. Who washes their face? She so goes, okay. If there's no mirror, the clean guy looks at the dirty guy and he washes his face, and the dirty guy looks at the clean guy and he doesn't wash his face. If there's a mirror, the clean guy looks in the mirror, he sees he doesn't need to wash his face, and the dirty guy looks in the mirror and sees he does need to wash his face. The rabbit says to him, Tell me, is it possible that two guys come down the same chimney and one guy's face is clean and the other face is dirty? <laughs> so we're gonna feel like that a little bit when we study this chap these chapters because we're looking things for, at things from many different perspectives. And each of these perspectives are true, but we're, gonna, we're aiming to come to the truth of all truths. It's like, you know, if you do, you know the, the 12 bi- blind men describing the elephant and one of the seven says, tree trunk, you know, because they can't feel. until so they put all their perspective together and they realize it's an elephant. Even the guy who's holding one elephant's leg and says, this is a leg. What he's saying is true, it's a leg. Somebody who's holding onto the elephant's trunk is saying, this is a trunk, it's true. But then there's the truth of truths, and that this is an elephant. So we're looking at things from many different angles, and that's part of this trip that we're taking right now. We're going to look at this one thing, and we're going to say it's true. But what we're aiming to get at is the truth of truths, and that is that the only reality is Hashem. So as we look at each piece, and we're going to examine it, and we're going to relate to it, we're looking to not just know... Superficially, but to know internally and cognizantly be aware of the fact that there's just one existence, and that's Hashem. And that's exactly what we mean when we say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. It's not just that there's only one God or there's only one power, but there's actually only one reality, and that's Hashem. So we started last week with chapter 20, and we were saying in order to understand what creation is, we have to understand the nature of a word, because All of creation was created by the word of Hashem. So what is a word? And we start to look at our own human experience in order to arrive at the value of a word compared to who we are. So we first looked at a word, and we said, what value does one word have compared to our power to speak, the articulate soul? Has no value. We were looking at one word, one utterance, and the power to speak is infinite. When you compare one utterance to infinity, it's valueless. We said, okay, that's one perspective, but let's look up even higher. What if you compare it to the actual garment of the soul, the power to speak, the, the soul's middle garment, not even the higher garment, the soul's middle garment. And again, we said, it is absolutely valueless. When we moved up higher, we said, we're moving stage by stage because if you take it from one and then to the ultimate, we're not realizing the depth of exactly how insignificant it is. It's so insignificant just to the power of speech. It's even more insignificant when we compare it to the power of thought, which gives life to speech. Mm-hmm. When you think of one utterance compared to the power to thought, it's val- valueless. But then we said one second, thought and speech are both comprised of letters. Ultimately, they have some type of external form that is a form of expression. It is outside of the person himself. Both thought and speech are garments of the soul. Those are modes of expression. Speech is expression to somebody outside of yourself. And thought is of a much higher order. It's yourself to yourself. But you think in a language. Why do you think of a language? Because you're expressing your intellect and your emotions. That's the very essence of your soul. You're expressing yourself to yourself. That's what thought is. But then what if we take this one utterance, which is valueless compared to speech, valueless compared to thought, and we measure it up against the entity of the person? We're not talking about the person as he is relating to other people. We're talking about the person to himself. One word that he says, Hi, Whitney, it's been so long. One word... Uh, compared to the essence and the identity of the person themselves, what is that? It's absolutely nothing. And at that point, when it comes to the intellect and the emotions, the essence, it's pre-speech, it's pre-letters, it's, it's before, there's when a person understands something, when a person feels something they don't one person doesn't love in French and another person love in English. It's beyond language. This is the essence and the identity of the person before it's even expressed or put into containers. Letters are containers, they're vessels. They bring things from one place to another. Before the self has been poured out, any and anything, just the essential pure self is before letters. It's prelingual. And to to compare the nothingness of one utterance to that place is to show you just exactly how valueless it is. And that's how we ended off the chapter. We did not take the analogy yet. That was the end of the chapter, but we didn't take the analogy yet to try to put it into terms that we understand to say what is the Alta Rebbe teaching us with the analogy. Because, okay, so we compared the absolutely valueless nothingness of one utterance compared to going up and up according to speech, according to thought, according to ourself, but what is the altar Rebbe trying to tell us? Even if we're going to say that the one word is valueless, but what did the al Rebbe say in the beginning of the chapter? He said that all of creation, which came about by the word of Hashem, is as nothing compared to Him. We're not just saying it has little value, we're saying it's nothing. It's one thing if you say, okay, I get it, Hashem is so great, or let's look at the human experience. Our intimate self is so much vaster than just the one utterance, but... All you're saying is that this is greater and this is smaller. How could you say that it's nothing? So this is something that um, the previous Rebbe brings by an analogy. And he says like this. Let's say you, you have a very profoundly wise man. Somebody who's not just smarter than other people. He's of an entirely different league. He just thinks differently than anybody else because he sees things from a different perspective. He's not just, here's a little smart man, here and here's a medium smart man, and here's a genius. He's a guy that's of an entirely different order, like King Shlomo, Solomon. He was so wise that, let's say you compare a minor wise man to him. The minor wise man is speaking, and everybody else is very impressed by the way he's speaking. He seems to be very smart. Along comes King Shlomo, and then says an idea that all of a sudden when you hear the words of the minor wise man and you compare them to the words of Shlomo, not only are you not gonna say that this man is a little bit smart, but Shlomo is much, much smarter than this man. What you're gonna say about the wisdom of the small man, this minor wise man, you're gonna say it's foolishness. It's absolute idiocy. It's not like all of a sudden you're gonna say, okay, he's a little bit wise and King Shlomo is much wiser. When you hear his wisdom and then you hear what Shlomo has to say, all of a sudden, even the the wise man himself, he feels completely inadequate. He feels like a fool. It's, you're so, he said something. It's not like he didn't say something. But the words that he said, you first initially you look at it and you say, wow, this is wisdom. Then you hear Shlomo Hamelch speaking and you say, is this wisdom? Does this make any sense at all? It's foolishness. It's nothingness. So yes, we look at creation of the world, and we're impressed by creation. We say, wow, this is existence. This is something. This is a reality for itself. But then when you come to compare it, step by step, we were taking it in the human soul, but compare it to the divine. The human being is created in the image of Hashem Now of course we're not exactly like Hashem But everything that we have within ourselves Is an analogy for the divine So there is a divine limited A very very constricted divine power And that's called the power of speech And then you take that limited divine power And you compare it to a higher level within the divine To thought And then you compare it to a higher level To the actual essence and identity of Hashem At first view you were looking at the world And you were saying wow what an existence. Isn't this impressive? And then all of a sudden, you put it to Hashem, you realize, is this what you call existence? And it's not because we're saying that creation is not in existence. The Torah tells us, Baratish, Bara Elochim, ba arats, the world has been created. Is it is in existence. But how do you come to classify existence? What makes existence existence? When you start looking at this existence and you contrast it to the very essence of Hashem, are you going to say is this? Ex-? You're going to say is this existence? So how the the previous Rebbe sums it up is that existence is existence, remains in existence, and yet it is completely non-existent. So yes, there is reality, and yes, it exists. But let's take this reality and realize what is it. That's what we're coming to realize. Right now, in these chapters, we're working at arriving at the truth, intellectually and emotionally, so not, that we not just hear it as a line. You could say it in one sentence, but we're not trying to say it in one sentence. We're trying to arrive at the deep cognition and recognition that there's only one reality, and that is Hashem. So, now this is not, this is an imperfect analogy, but let's say a man is alone in a room, or any of us, we're alone in a room, we're studying, we're so happy to have some time to ourselves. And all of a sudden, a tiny, tiny, tiny little bug walks into the room. Are you going to say that the person's not alone anymore? They're still alone. I mean, now, of course, they really are not still alone because a person is a creature and a bug is a creature. <laughs> but nevertheless, when that bug flew in last week, I thought we were going to say the analogy last week, and I say we still feel felt like we were not alone. But we're talking about a very tiny, insignificant flea comes into the room or whatever kind of bug that makes absolutely no difference, you're not going to say that the person now has company. So existence has been created, but let's realize what is existence and realize that it's nothing other than the word of Hashem. And we're coming to understand with this chapter now the unique property of divine speech. So here we were first looking at one utterance in the human experience, how it compares to our very self to realize the absolute non-existence of existence. In this chapter, we're going to now discuss what is the qualities, the unique properties of divine speech that make it different than human speech. Okay, chapter 21. What's this book? This is Tanya. No, but with the English and the
1: translation. Oh, this is from
0: Lessons in Tanya. I printed out from Chabad.org. This is Lessons in Tanya. It's a book? It's a book called Lessons in Tanya. It's a five volume. They have the whole Tanya translated and elucidated.
1: It's like translated and a little bit? Of a history. little bit. If
0: you, as you see, we have some little paragraphs oh, of explanation. Little, sorry
1: the, for the uh, interruption. The be,
0: uh, wait, if you want a recommendation for a very well-elucidated book, I yeah. would recommend Rabbi Chaim Miller's Practical Tanya. So
1: that's the name of it?
0: That's not this one. That's another one. It's called The Practical Tanya by Rabbi Chaim Miller.
1: Einstein.
0: And she, yeah. Un- unbelievable.
1: Like, the practical tanya? The
0: other one is little, yeah, it's it's so easy. The
1: practical.
0: the practical tanya is not so easy. easy? What's the other one? The, yeah. the, Rabbi so, so there's one called opening, what Rorya is referring to is, is this, opening is the tanya. This? That's that one, yeah. Rorya is referring to opening the tanya by Rabbi Steinsaltz. And then there's the practical Tanya by Rabbi Chaya Miller, and this copy that we're using right over here is called Lessons in Tanya.
1: But that goes only to chapter 12. Beyond that,
0: there's another volume.
1: Oh. So States for House someone, has a few
0: volumes. Hi, welcome. The first volume is called Opening the Tanya.
1: So for someone that doesn't, not really familiar, doesn't have a background, what do you think it's the best in, Hebrew, best? in
0: the English. They they have no Hebrew background whatsoever. Not really. It depends. If like you're saying, Shteinsalz is easy for you because that's you with your conceptual
1: mind. But not if somebody is very
0: intellectual. It depends on the person. If somebody is very intellectual, they may not have a background in the Hebrew language. I would definitely recommend Shteinsalz opening the Tanya. Somebody who we're rather just more a, a language that suits them and is not interested so much in like, than um, the practical tiny But like everybody's saying, it's not as Absolutely. simple as we think. I like that. And not okay, it's, it's not, it's. It's never going to be simple because the, stu- the stuff that we're studying is very deep. So, but we're going to have to take it step by step. I recommend the practical Tanya, but uh, even for
1: someone that's not um, No, maybe
0: opening the Tanya. I don't know. I would have to meet the person. For somebody who has no paper. Yeah. Anyway, what about GPS for the salt? I never read it. So. Okay, so there you have another recommendation. GPS okay, I, soul. I don't know why I can't see through these glasses. Okay, chapter twenty-one. Now, the nature of the divine order is not like that of human of a human being, a creature of flesh and blood. Therefore, human terms cannot ad- adequately describe divine qualities. Thus, in our case, so we're looking at our own speech, and we're looking at Hashem's speech, and we're thinking, we're thinking that they're the same thing. It's not just when we say that the human being is different than the, the way of a human being is different than the way of the divine. It's not just that the way Hashem speech is spiritual and the way we speak is physical. Like when we speak, we move our lips, we project our voice. And Hashem doesn't do that. He speaks on a spiritual level. So it's not just that this is spiritual and this is physical or this is physical and this is spiritual. It's, it's an entirely different character and theme. So there's something about speech that's human and what is speech? Speech is a disclosure. It's an act of disclosure, it's a revelation. We have three garments of our soul, right? We have thought, we have speech, and we have action. Thought, we express ourselves to ourself. It does not come to be revealed to anybody outside of ourselves. It's ourself expressing to ourself. You know, sometimes people think in their head and they think everybody else knows what they're saying and they expect that. Like, you know the guy whose car breaks down the middle of the freeway? And he's walking to get, it's the middle of the night, and he's walking to get a jack to fix his tire. In the olden days, pre-cell phone. So he starts walking and walking, and he sees a light. He's like, oh, good, that guy probably has a jack in his house. Then he's thinking, he has a jack, but what if he doesn't want to lend me his jack? I I can't believe it. Why wouldn't somebody want to lend a poor man who's stuck on the freeway their jack in the middle? This is terrible. By the time he reaches the man's house, he's so worked up, and the guy opens the door and he says, why wouldn't you lend me your jack? You know, (laughs) he had thoughts in his head and he's expecting that other people are knowing exactly what he's processing, but that's not how it works. Thought is simply a disclosure to ourself. If you want to reveal something outside of yourself, If you want people to know what you're thinking, you actually have to put it into words. Now, what happens when we put thoughts into words? Now, the speech becomes an independent entity. Now, before we spoke, we were the master of our words. After we speak, the word becomes a master of us. It takes on its own independence and becomes an existence for itself. Like, you know the story of the man who was constantly speaking Lashon Hara. He was speaking bad things about other people, constantly spreading gossip. And he came to a point in his life where he realized that this is not good. He wants to do teshuva. So he came to the rabbi and he said, I need help. All my life I've been speaking gossip, spreading rumors about people. It's terrible, all the damage that I've done. I need a way to rectify what I did. And the rabbi said, okay, take this feather pillow, go out into the street and cut it open and let all the feathers out and then come back to me. So the guy goes outside, he cuts open the pillow, he lets all the feathers go, and he comes back. And the rabbi says, okay, now I want you to go back outside and collect all the feathers. I can't. And he said, well, that's what happens when you say all these kind of words. Once the word has left you, you no longer have control over the word. It has become separate from you, and there's no way for you to pull it back. Now of course anybody can do Teshuvah, but it's just to teach you the power of speech that when it was within us, it was part of us. The second we put it outside of us, it became something different. Because it is an act of disclosure, it is also an act of separation. The two work in tandem, they can't be separate from each other. The second you put it outside of yourself, you have given it its own identity. So in, in what is speech? Speech is an act of disclosure, it is also an act of separation. Hi, welcome! <laughs> Hi! When we say that uh, the divine speech is different than the human speech, we're not just saying that one is spiritual and one is physical, we're also saying that in the very theme there's a difference. And let's see how they're different. Adam, dibor hare hevel hadibor she'befiv, When a man says something, the breath of the spoken word may be sensed and is perceived as an independent entity separated from its source, namely the ten intellectual and emotional faculties of the soul itself. While still encapsulated in its source, the word is utterly nullified. However, when it is spoken and it leaves its source, it takes on an identity of its own. This is true, however, only with regard to human speech. So in human speech, in, in the human experience, everything, there's an advantage and it will be tied up with a disadvantage. That's how it works. For a human being, when they put something outside of themselves, when they reveal, when they disclose, then they also separate. That's just how it is. It's, like, it's, it's a good thing to know, by the way, because also you can look the other way. When you see something that seems to be negative, you can say, one second, this is probably the flip side of something that is positive. Like, For example, somebody who's always late, right? So you can look at the person and say, oh my gosh, they're always, they're always running late. But running late is actually the flip side of something else. And that is the flip side of being flexible and tolerant and easygoing and spontaneous. Oh <laughs> they, they work in tandem. So, so you have to realize that on the flip side of every human advantage, there's a disadvantage. And every disadvantage, there's an advantage. It's like um, Rabbi Jacob Emanuel Shochat when he was... He actually translated um, one of the earliest translations of the Tanya, a brilliant man. He passed away a few years ago, I think. And um, when his mother was seeking to marry him off, she went to the Rebbe with a whole list of things that she's looking for in a wife for her son. And the Rebbe said to her, It looks like you want your son to marry more than one woman. (laughs) All those traits cannot coexist in one person. If, you know, with every advantage, there also comes a disadvantage. So in the human experience... I
1: would have been this late if I didn't have to park around. The, the, this class is very popular. There's <laughs> absolutely no parking. You're just talking about the advantages of being like. <laughs> is <this> really? <laughs> Literally, advantage? just oh before you walked God, in. And yes, and it's I'm not very, extra, it's yours. Um, oh, it's my jacket. <laughs> here, come sit but down. I'm very conscientious. But your, your seat now. is right here. Come so. sit down, Shelley. Thank you.
0: So, but that's only in the human experience. When it comes to Hashem, He is the ultimate of perfection without any of the detractors that come with that advantage. So, with Hashem, speech is an act of disclosure, but it is not an act of separation. But the speech of God is not, heaven forbid, separated from his divine self, for nothing is outside of him and no place is devoid of him, so that his speech is always contained within him. With us, when we say a word, it leaves us and takes on its own separate identity and existence. But with Hashem, while his speech is an act of disclosure, it is not an act of separation. There is nothing outside of Hashem. Remember what we said in the other class, that he is the place of the world and the world is not his place. So he's called Hamakom, the place. Everything exists within Hashem. There is no space devoid of him. And as we speak about the nothingness of creation and a person can feel despondent and say, oh, I can't believe it. Does this mean I'm actually nothing? In a different discourse, the author of looks at this, has, how we say there's nothing separate from Hashem and we're saying that he's the only existence and he explains to us, he says, it's not an act of distancing. It's the ultimate act of closeness. When you realize that there's absolutely nothing that separates how close we are to Hashem, there is nothing outside of Him. We are literally exist within Him. Therefore, his speech is not like our speech, God forbid, just as obviously his thought is not like our thought, as it is written, for my thoughts are not like your thought. And it is also written, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Similarly, God's speech is different from human speech. So again, we said that divine speech is different than human speech. Not just that one is spiritual and the other is physical; it's different in the very theme and character of speech. Because in, in human speech, it has to leave you, because the fact that you are disclosing yourself means now the word has become separate from you. It now has an independent entity. I see you're you're giving. I'm uh, sorry. Love, Excuse me. Love uh, signs.
1: You know <laughs> why? Because I told you this girl grew up with best friend to my late daughter, Leshalem Jennifer, and I have never seen her daughter as an adult. So she looks so much like Catherine, and I took a chance and I went, and she said her mom. It's very well. Baruch Hashem. We always have
0: these amazing surprises and epiphanies, Baruch Uh, Baruch Hashem. So we're saying that human speech is different than divine speech in that not just the fact that one is spiritual, one is physical, but in its very character. The the Nevi'ah tells us, my ways are not like your ways, and my my your your thoughts are not my like my thoughts, and my and as high as the heaven is from the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. It's not just of a different like realm; it's of an int- different, entirely different character and theme. So now we have a question. Yes.
1: So as we uh, utter a word, and it leaves us, it becomes a different entity
0: but that entity is still within Hashem. Within Hashem. But not within us. We're looking at but our human experience. Right, but we're look, let's just take... What, right now, see, we're, you're ready there. <laughs> you're already there, and for the rest of us, it's an optical illusion. We sense ourselves as being a separate entity. Even if you know that there's an optical illusion, by the way you will have to constantly correct your cognition to remind yourself that this is, you know the famous one about the line? Uh, um, Nancy, can I borrow your pen for a second? I wanna show you something, thank you so much. So there's two lines, right? They're exactly the same length. Okay, you see them? They're both the same length, right? Mm-hmm. Now, do this to one line, and then you do this to the other line, and then I'll say which line is bigger, just the actual line? The top one. Same. They're the same. Really? But everybody's gonna, your mind is gonna tell you, you're gonna look at it and it's gonna feel as though the top one is bigger. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an optical illusion. Now, for those of us who know the optical illusion, we're gonna look at this and we're gonna say, oh, they're the same. But it's not because we actually sense that they're the same, it's because we know that they're the same so we're reining our emotions in and we're saying, no, no, it looks that it's the same but it's, I mean, it looks that it's different, this one looks bigger, that one looks smaller but actually they're the same. So as human beings, our initial cognition is that we're in existence for ourselves. We have an independent entity. We're coming to realize that there's a soul reality and that's the reality of Hashem. And it will take us a very long time till we actually not just get it emotionally, hopefully it wouldn't take us that long, but let's just say <laughs> it's possible that it could take a person a very long time to get it emotionally, but intellectually at one point they're gonna get it. So although that they're gonna keep saying this line is bigger, this line is smaller emotionally, intellectually they're gonna stop themselves saying, When well, I know this, this one is, they're both the same size. So we feel like we're a separate entity and so we have to keep arranging ourselves in. You don't have to, it looks like. It. Oh, no. <laughs> but when we utter one word, we're looking at the human experience. When we utter one word, that word becomes separate from us. When Hashem utters one word, it never becomes separate from us because it does not leave him. There is nothing that leaves him. So now we have a question. Well, if divine speech, excuse yes? Excuse me, isn't the illusion of separate entities so that we can have free will? That's right. It's a reason so for that. that. Hashem created that. This is exactly what we're gonna discuss in this chapter and as we as it comes up but if divine speech is indeed never separated from god how can it be described as speech at all why call it speech why are we calling it speech we're saying human speech is different than a divine speech so not only in the way that it's one is spiritual one is physical but even in its theme and character so why are we calling it speech Human speech constitutes communication only because the spoken word becomes separated from the speaker. Thought by contrast, because it remains within one's soul, is hidden from all but the thinker himself. But since nothing ever becomes separated from God, the term speech seemingly provides us with no understanding at all of the nature of divine communication. An explanation, the that states that speech is distinguished by two characteristics. A, it reveals that which was previously hidden in the speaker's thoughts. And B, it becomes separated from its source. Only the former characteristic of human speech is analogous to divine speech, which reveals to creation that which was hitherto hidden within godliness. So speech is an act of disclosure, bless you, and it's also an act of separation. When it comes to Hashem, it is an act of disclosure. So yes, human speech reminds us of divine speech in the fact that it's an act of disclosure, but in divine speech, there's no such thing as separation. But when you say God's speaking, do you mean the Torah? So, never heard God, right, so very good, and thank you for that question. When we say God speaking, we say, ma nevra ha'olam. that means with ten utterances the world was created. So his speech is creation, and his speech is also the Torah. Throughout the Torah it says, Vay dabar Hashem, ha Hashem." what does it mean? Maimonides speaks about this. We have to understand that we, we understand. Hopefully this much we understand. When it says God spoke, it doesn't mean that Hashem has physical lips and a physical voice and he said actual words. It's only so that human beings can understand and relate to the divine. When it says God spoke, it means he did an act of revelation, of disclosure. Maimonides talks about this. He says, you know, in, in Daniel it says, and he saw him garbed in snow white. And then, and then uh, in another Navi it says... Um, Here he is coming in crimson garments from Basra and Moses himself at the at the splitting of the sea he saw God as though he were a mighty mighty warrior and at, at the giving of the Torah he saw God as if he were a prayer leader wrapped in a prayer shawl. What is this telling us? Hashem has no image at all. These that we relate to Hashem, that we say Hashem has, that we say Hashem says, and if I will wet my sword of lightning. What sword of lightning? Does God have a sword? Does he need a sword to kill? It's not that. It's that these are all terms of analogy so that we can relate to God with our human experience. If we would speak about God as he is, and those would be the very, very precise terms, but we would have no idea what it was saying.
1: (laughs) Why do we say he? it
0: has no identity or not. Why do we call God he, you're saying as gender-wise? because mm-hmm. she together in Hebrew. Mm-hmm.
1: When it's masculine and feminine together, the masculine always predominates the feminine for some reason. So even if there's like a group, everyone becomes he.
0: He. You speak and to the group in, right? masculine, in masculine masculine form. Yes. I always wonder that why do we talk here? Because yeah. there's the there is the masculine um, energy of God and there's the feminine energy of God, but God trans- transcends both the masculine and feminine. And as Mehtal um, answered in Hebrew, the default way is He.
1: But isn't it a little. I always feel maybe I'm wrong, and mm. chas v'shalom, I, I only. Mm want to be loving and respectful that I, I do try my best you know Terech Hashem but you know when they um, indicate of Hashem as He that also I mean you could take that deep and feel that God is not a He God is not a She I, God is
0: God Everything. one yeah. and only one God that's right yeah.
1: am I right So yeah, there's, there's
0: only one God and because the Torah does refer to God in the masculine form that's how we refer to God in the masculine form because why the Torah refers to God in a masculine form. When it says about Hashem, it speaks to, about Him in a masculine form.
1: Mm. Everything was written in a masculine form because we, B'nai Adam, the children of Adam, were also referred to as a masculine before modern language decided to give a feminine form. Of the but Lord there of were girls, like Chava Adam. Right, right. right. I, I, they,
0: were adro- they were actually an androgynous being. They were right. one that were, came to be separated and the two together were called Adam. But anyway, this is a great discussion, to and I'm valley, gonna put a cap on masculine it, just so that we can get adro- back to the chapter man. and- So
1: common man, uh, uh, modern man took it to be a masculine term, but it used to be an androgynous term, as Adam was Got androgynous. Right. So it was feminine and masculine.
0: Thank you, Maytel. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you were asking about the character of divine speech, and so we're saying absolutely, when we say divine speech, it's not speech as, We know it. But the Torah speaks to us in a language that we can understand. So if we would use the terms to apply to the divine as they actually are true to the divine, they would be meaningless to us. We wouldn't understand what that means. So how do we understand through our own experience? And Job, it says, I behold God from my own flesh. From our own experience, our experience is an analogy to understand what goes on in the divine realms. Obviously in a totally different nature, but something of the same. So for example, speech. So speech, what is speech in the human realm of existence? It's an act of disclosure and an act of separation. What is speech in the divine experience? It's It's definitely not the physical movement of lips and breath. It is an act of disclosure, but it is not an act of separation. So that's the difference between human speech and divine speech. Divine speech is an act of revelation. It's an act of disclosure. It is not an act of separation. Human speech, because it's an act of disclosure, automatically, side by side, locked in together, is that it becomes an act of separation. Can humans partake in divine speech? Sorry. Can humans partake in divine speech? Not that I know of. What do you mean, partake in?
1: No, I mean, can they, if you say something kadosh, it doesn't separate. If you're cognizant that it's.
0: Once you have, just physically speaking, once you have uttered a word, it has become separate. It has to, You can't even get <laughs> yeah. out of it. That's it. Once you said a word, it has become separated from you. doesn't mean it's bad.
1: But when we say something
0: would be separated from God, that's already. See, what we're working towards, can I get you a drink? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you so much. What we're working towards is coming to the realization, because remember we started off chapter 20 saying, we, we started off with chapter 18. Don't mind me backtracking, we're just putting things into perspective. We started off with chapter 18 saying, a Jewish person doesn't even have, there's a level that we have to work to in order to come to love Hashem. We take our mind, we meditate, we come to the deep realization of Hashem's reality, and it sparks our heart on fire. And that's a, a love that we work for. In chapter 18, we started to realize that there's a love that's just natural to us. And we may not feel it. We don't live with it on a day-to-day level. And it comes to the fore when a Jew is put to the test of faith. Throughout the generations, there are Jewish people who didn't lead a religious life. And not just a religious life. They lived a, maybe even a criminal life. Like a thief or an adulterer. And all of a sudden, it came to a moment of, you know, deny Hashem, and they gave up their life. Why were they giving up their life? They were giving up their life because of their divine soul, which was sleeping all this time. But all of a sudden, at this moment of... Do or die, they said, Die. I'm just so now the altar was saying, Okay, so you have this atomic bomb in you that wouldn't let you go against Hashem at that crucial moment. Of you choose Hashem or you choose to separate yourself from Hashem, a Jew says, I never want to be separated from Hashem. So now, what are these? What is this belief in God? It's the first two commandments. The first two commandments are, I am God, your God, you shall have not have no other gods besides for me. These two commandments are the reason why Jews throughout the ages have given up their life. They died not to transgress these two commandments. The Alt-Rebbe is trying to take our realization, take this atomic bomb and channel it to feed our everyday awareness. It shouldn't just come at a moment of idol worship. Take this energy that we have and put it to use day to day. So he says, I want to tell you something, you're ready to give up your life for the first two commandments, but I have news for you, we have learned that all of the 613 commandments are an expression of these two commandments. The first commandment, I am God, your God, includes all the positive commandments. And the second commandment, you shall not have any other gods, is, includes all the prohibitive, prohibitive commandments. And so really every mitzvah or vera that we do is about, are we choosing Hashem or are we not choosing Hashem? In order to understand this well, we have to first understand what it means, unity of Hashem. What does it mean that God is the only reality? And that's what we're working towards because you realize, let's say in the example of a king, in the olden day times when there were kings, right? So there is, if somebody rebelled against the king or they committed treason, that's, very, that's a serious offense. They have to die for that, right? So let's say a guy doesn't commit treason, but instead he breaks the law of the land and he steals. Are you gonna say that he committed treason? He didn't commit treason, he stole. He, he's unlawful, he broke the law, but he didn't commit treason. So why are we saying that any time a person goes against the will of God, that it's not just, they, they believe in God, but they stole. It's more than that. They're actually denying the oneness of God. When a person transgresses the will of Hashem, they're denying his oneness. In order for us to understand that, we're coming to understand what is the oneness of God. So we're looking at creation as a word of God. We compared a word in the human experience. Now we're looking at what is the unique character of divine speech. Divine speech is an act of disclosure, but it is not an act of separation. God's speech is called speech, only in order to illustrate that quality of re- revelation which it possesses, for just as man's speech reveals to his audience that what was hidden and concealed in his thoughts, so too the emergence of the light and life force of the Ein from concealment before creation into revelation through the act of creation for the purpose and of creating and animating the world, is called speech. In this case, the audience is the created being, from its own perspective at least, and which from its own perspective at least, is separate from God. So, we, we're looking at divine speech, this is what the world was created with, it is an act of revelation, and the human being experiences it as though it was an act of separation. But we have to come to understand that there is no separation when it comes to God. It's only an act of revelation. So speech is really not speech by our concept. Right? It's, it's not it's just exposing that's the inner right. reality. That's exactly it. Okay. It's exposing the inner reality. It's, not, it's definitely not actual voice uh, or movement of the lips, even though when God spoke at, at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people actually heard this was a physical manifestation of hearing the but in general it says, so this is this is what the speech is it is these revelations of divine light and life force that comprise the ten divine utterances recorded in the Torah Namely, and God said, let there be light, let the earth sprout for it, and so on, by which the world was created. So what's speech? Speech are the ten utterances by which the world was created. This is a divine revelation of divine power that was always there, but now came out to be expressed and now create something. When God spoke and he, the world came to being, this is speech. It's an act of revelation. So we're saying that nothing has changed since God created the world. To us as created beings it seems like there's been a very big change. There was God pre-creation and there's God post-creation before he was one and alone, alone, singular and unique, and then he created a world, and then there's him and his world. But we're trying to correct our optical illusion and say "No, no, no, no. He was one, alone, singular and unique before the world was created, and guess what? He is just as alone right now, even since the world has been created. And in our experience, we cannot understand speech as being only an act of revelation without being an act of separation, but in God's, ex- in God's experience, it's an act of revelation, but there has been absolutely no separation. We're gonna speak about our, towards the end of the chapter, we're gonna speak about our optical illusion and that why we do feel ourselves to be separate. Because so ultimately- So does that mean that the world existed before it was revealed to us? In potential. It's a divine power that has been revealed. And we're, we're literally going to visit those terms as we, as we move into this chapter. Likewise, all the other words of the Torah, the prophets and the holy writings are also called speech, even though they were not, they were not revealed for the purpose of creation since they too represent the divine revelation which the prophets perceived in their prophetic vision. Hence, when we f- refer to God's revelation as His speech, the analogy extends only to speech as revelation and communication but not to speech as something separate from the speaker an idea which is not applicable to godliness so that was section one section one we were characterizing divine speech what is divine speech we looked at human speech and we said human speech is an act of disclosure of revelation it's also an act of separation but god's speech is of an entirely different order it is Analogous to human speech only in the fact that it is an act of revelation, but it is not an act of separation. So now we're moving to stage two and we're going to see the absolute nullification of God's word in in Sof Baruch Hu, and within himself. This one word, how it is absolutely null within the essence of God. And that's what we're moving on to right now. Thus, God's speech and thought are united with him in absolute union, just like speech and thought of a man before he actually expresses them and speeches thought, rather as they are while still in his faculty of wisdom and intellect or as they exist, in the desire or craving that are still in the heart before they rise from the heart to the brain, they are to be meditated upon with the letters of thought. Okay, so when we're saying God's speech is united with him, the altar says, in the ultimate level of unity. It's not like you're taking two separate things and then you're joining them together. This is an ultimate union. And what is he saying now? He's saying they're united with him just like speech or thought of a person before he expressed them in thought, while they're still in faculty of his wisdom or intellect, while they're still in a desire or craving within his heart. Does anybody remember what we learned last chapter and do you feel a little bit confused? (laughs) Do you remember what we said about language being, as far as language and our intellect and emotion? We said that there was no language in and emotion, so what in the world are we saying now? So, in order to understand this, we have to understand a principle in chassadis, in general in philosophy. And that is, whenever something comes from a source, it already exists within the source, but it is not a separate entity for itself, and it's as if it's nothing within the source. The example that the Altar book gives later on in, in Tanya, and in The Gate of Unity and Faith, in Chapter 3, he gives the example of the rays of the sun and the globe of the sun. The rays of the sun are lighting up this w- room. They're lighting up the entire world, or half of it. Do they exist within the sun? Mm-hmm. They must exist within the sun. But in the sun, we don't say, here are rays of the sun. In the sun, there's nothing but the sun itself. Do the rays exist within the sun? They exist within the sun, but within the sun itself, there's nothing other than the sun itself. When the rays are within the sun, they have no separate identity. It's only once they leave the sun that these are considered rays of the sun. Within the globe of the sun itself, there are no rays. It's just sun. But are you going to say that there is no rays in the? Sun? There are no rays in the sun? There are rays in the sun. Where else do the rays come from? But at that point, when they're included within their source, they have no separate identity. So there are rays in the sun, but for all practical purposes, there are no rays in the sun, it's just sun. In the source itself, there's not gonna be the source and another something that has a different character within the source, no, no, no. In the source, there's just source. Although rays exist within the sun, there are no rays within the sun as far as the sun is concerned, it's just sun. There's one source, but yet there are rays within the sun. And so now we said, Last chapter we were saying there are no letters in intellect and emotion. they they transcend the element of letters. Letters are only born once we start with expression. As soon as we start to, we don't love and hate in, in languages, we don't even feel hunger in languages. Our desire and our intellect are beyond language. We feel a raw awareness, we feel a raw desire. Only once we want to start thinking about how to implement our desire or about the desire, that's when we start thinking in languages, when we start speaking in languages. But intellect and emotion are prelingual. There are no letters there. Well, what triggers the letters for us to think or what triggers the letters for us to speak? It is our intellect and our emotions. So we have to say that although there are no letters in intellect and emotion, there actually are letters in intellect and emotion, but they're nothing for themselves. They're absolutely null and void. It's like the rays of the sun within the body of the sun. At that point, they're so united with the intellect and emotion, there's nothing besides the intellect and emotion. There's the essential self. You're not going to say, within the essential self, there are letters. Within the source, there's not going to be something else besides the character of the very source. Within the sun, there's not going to be something else that has its own apartment over there. It's all just one source. Within our, our intellect and emotions, true, there's the letters, but there are no letters. There are nothing. There's nothing there that's gonna be separate. It's only once it leaves to be expressed as something else. Only once the rays of the sun leave the sun in order to shine, then we say there are rays of the sun. Only once the letters are born to, to speak and, and think, then we say there are letters. So even though letters actually do exist in this prelingual state of intellect and emotion, we don't consider them in existence. We consider them that they absolutely don't exist. So, so
1: they don't exist in an undifferentiated they
0: state. They don't exist in an undifferentiated state, but not only don't they exist in an undifferentiated state, we're not going to call them in existence for themselves. The existence is the sun. You're not going to say that within the sun there are rays and there are separate existence. No, there's a sun. You can't, they're not going to say that there's something of an ent- entirely different order and character in existence within the sun itself. That, that, that's not how it is. Within the source, there's but one source. The potential for it is there, but it is not something of its own character. And so, this is what we're arriving at right over here at this so chapter. That's exactly what you're talking
1: about, about us being united with the right. exactly sun. That. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it.
0: That's exactly it. Not And not just in, in a, some type of joining together unity, but in an ultimate level of unity, never having left all, the source.
1: All these are there.
0: That's exactly it. And even, I, I hate to give it, give it away, but even the concealments are part of Hashem himself. And that's what we're going we're gonna to get to at the end of this chapter. So um, we're going to close up over here. We're still in the middle of realizing the absolute... Nullity of the divine word within the essence of Hashem Himself, and um, Rosh Hashanah is coming. So I I want we should all bless each other that it should be a kasei v'achasei a good kibbutzir. May we all be sealed and inscribed for a happy, healthy, sweet New Year. We Amen. should feel our closest to Hashem in a way of joy and always be so thrilled at the closeness that we have to Him and He should shower us with brachas that we feel as good. Amen. We know this is great and we're always, it, should, it says, I will pour blessings upon you till there is no end until your lips will start getting worn out from saying, enough, enough, enough. So that's how many rechahs should be pouring down upon all of us. And kesiva v'chassima tova. Shana tova u'metika. Oh, next week, no. This is a portent announcement. No cl- no class until after Chagim. So October 30, God willing? Yes. Isn't
1: there a difference between intellect and emotion? Yeah. It's so different.
0: It's just two different entities. They're, intellect and emotion are part of our soul powers, which are our, our identity. Our identity, because you're saying this, look. But
1: intellect has words. Emotion, maybe you're no, using intellect too quickly. No, no,
0: because you, you're, you're, you are putting intellect in the same category as thought. Mm. And thought and intellect are not the same thing. Mm. Thought has words. So when you think, you think in words. But when you understand, do you understand in words? You don't. Do you notice that? When you understand, you, when you, like I get it. When you get it, it's not that you got it in words. You, you got it, it's beyond words. It's because that's your essential soul. So thought has words, but intellect does not have words. Intellect is our power of understanding. It doesn't have words, it's our essential self. So the same way that you speak in a language, but you don't love in a language, that's your emotions, you think in a language, but you don't understand in a, a language, and that's your intellect. So intellect is a part of this. Thank you so much.
1: I wish you had
0: office hours. <laughs> this is it. Could you please Ask repeat rabbit. that
1: beautiful <laughs> question? <laughs> Or he doesn't know that. Oh, definitely ask him. Because you
0: don't have, you're not My office hours is right now. I'm available. I'm available right now.
1: Okay. Could you re- repeat that beautiful statement in Hebrew and then I'll,
0: then in English. Oh, bahari Hashem, lacham bracha yeah, yeah, Can yeah, I write it for yeah. you? Please, please. Okay.